Well, thank you so much, Mel, for joining me today. Super excited to, to chat about your your interesting journey uh, before Bruvy, before you know becoming a coffee entrepreneur. Let's say, uh, I guess, talk about your your career path. Like, how does one you know work at Tower Records, then a lawyer in Singapore to becoming an entrepreneur in, in the coffee world? Like, talk about that journey before Bruvy. You know, everything happens because you just happen to be in the right place at the right time. Um, I know I know, we can think about being planful about things, but most of the stuff that happens to us is probably opportunistic. You know, I set my path when I was a kid on actually trying to become a professional soccer player, but hmm. I was so bad at that that, uh, <laughs> you know, I then decided that I needed to get into a band and I was equally bad at playing the keyboard. So, you know, I had no choice, but I had to go to, I had to, go to law school. It was my, my third option. Um, and, you know, just went that way. And my parents wouldn't pay for anything unless I actually became a lawyer. So, mm. but I knew right away, as soon as I started practicing after years and years of studying that, you know, being a lawyer is just a horrible fit for my personality. And sure. uh, I was more interested in the entrepreneurial side and trying to get clients. And, you know, I was a bit of a risk taker, which is kind of the antithesis of being a lawyer. Um <laughs> And then, uh, you know, I guess, you know, I, a client had multiple operating businesses and I was doing their contracts for, you know, opening a tower record store and, you know, they were opening a coffee business and I'm like, oh, that sounds really good. So I ended up leaving law and working in the executive field, building and developing the first tower record store in Malaysia at the time, because wow. I am Singaporean and I was in Singapore. And then they happened to want to do this coffee business, which was called the Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf. And we were the first franchisee in Malaysia and Singapore. So I'm like, listen, I'm already living in Malaysia. Let me let me try and open these coffee stores. And this was even before Starbucks opened over there. So, you know, we're talking about, God, 1997, 98. <laughs> and uh, then I guess the rest is history because, you know, music retailing, Sure. Went into the abyss um, <laughs> with digital and, you know, coffee experiences, especially because they provide the social interaction, yeah. um, became, uh, became, you know, all the rage. And, you know, we started opening coffee stores in Malaysia, in Singapore, and then the group was like, you know what, the growth in the US and the franchisor wasn't really stepping up to the plate. So why don't we try and see if we can buy them out? Because in two years, we had something like 27 coffee stores in Southeast Asia, and you know, they had not grown their US footprint. Mm -hmm. So I went over there uh, in 1999, which is over here in the US. Uh, and we worked on buying the parent company that happened and uh you know next thing we know after a long story too too long to talk about <laughs> we were uh owners of the coffee bean and tea leaf which had 30 stores in the us and 20 you know 30 stores about in in singapore and malaysia and you know the first day on the job you know all the executives left and you know i ended up <laughs> staying here and uh it was a situation of okay you know what do you want to do and so i ended up being in operations and uh, I got involved in operating the coffee business and opening coffee stores in the US, setting up the franchise system wow. uh, and expanding the brand. And uh, in the US, for those of you who are familiar with the coffee bean and tea leaf, we ended up growing the business from what was effectively 60 stores to you know over 1,500 stores worldwide with about wow. 35 different countries 
and it became this you know enormous business uh and uh we had a nice differentiation platform and you know we were doing pretty well and you know in 2013 we sold to private equity and later on we sold to a strategic and in 2019 i completely exited the coffee bean and tea leaf business no longer on the board uh, i was the ceo from 2008 to 2014 through that transition of growth and through selling the business to private equity and then i stayed on as a board member and you know um so i've been in coffee i would say for 20 something years 27 years now i lose wow. track of time i don't want to suggest what my age is <laughs> but it just happens you're in the right place you have the right opportunity and uh i grew to love the coffee industry i love the people i love yeah. the connection to the product and it so happened that through those years you know the specialty coffee rage hit you know what we call third wave coffee here uh people were able to differentiate quality from non-quality coffee and uh, it became part of the social fabric of 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 life uh, very much so. And, uh, and, you know, we now have, you know, we now consume coffee uh, immensely, you know, 65% of every American adult drinks yeah. coffee every day. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, the average is about, you know, two to three cups a day as well. So the amount of coffee consumption is just absolutely enormous. And uh, I, I, I was I was living that entire journey. Uh, and, you know, watched you know, how first wave coffee, which is, you know, the Folgers and the, you know, NASA gotcha. cafes of this world turned into second wave, which is the Starbucks and the Pete's turned into third wave, which is the specialty coffee growth. Yeah. And uh, I can continue, but I will pause there to see if you have another question. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I think it's so interesting that you saw the, the maturation of the entire industry really from, you know, as, as being maybe a, a side thing for, for, for a culture, right? Maybe to it is culture. You know, I, I think like you said, 65%. I mean, we're talking mass numbers at scale here. What was what was it like to to see it become I guess there's there's always this this sort of difficulty when a thing becomes like a commodity. It's it's really great for economies at scale, but there are then there are things that happen, you know, at the farmer level, right? And I think when we talk about coffee, you know, scale, there's these enormous businesses built off of it. It's like, how can we appreciate the farmer at, at the lowest level? Like, how have you seen sort of the, the maturation of the farming sector and, and sort of the farmer at the level as the sector has grown? How would you say the development on the ground ha has really matured in, in a positive way or a negative way? Just from yeah, your perspective, I'd love to hear it. I would say extremely positive because in the 60s and 70s, when first wave was there, coffee was in fact considered a commodity. You couldn't differentiate coffee in terms of quality grades um, yeah. because the sophistication of the consumer was just not there. There was no demand for higher grades of coffee. So as a commodity, I feel like uh, it, it is probably disadvantageous to farmers and producers. As coffee began to transition from a commodity to a flavor and mm. something that can be differentiated in taste and quality, you are able to allocate a premium price for better quality. And as a result of a premium price, uh, those farmers producing better coffee would get paid more. Uh, so there was this incentive for farmers to you know, raise the quality and to really start uh, differentiating their product by grades uh, because they would get paid more for it. 
and uh, yeah. and I think that's you know that was happening in the sort of 90s and you know the noughties. And then what we have today is you know consumers demanding or requesting fair trade. Uh, capital small F and T. They want to know that where they buy their coffee from have sustainable practices. They want to understand that you know you know they treat their work as well and they give back to their communities. So as a result of this demand side, uh, the producers have been more encouraged to demonstrate and to be certified and to show the buyers that you know they they practice good labor laws they don't have child labor they have water conservation um, and they are generally contributing back to the communities because consumers of specialty coffee and third wave coffee demand this they want to know from their coffee house that i'm buying coffee from places that treat farmers well uh, so it's always, you know, the long, complicated arm of capitalism that really yeah. makes the most change and the most effective change with the least amount of waste. And because consumers are willing to pay a premium for fair trade coffee, it trickles down to the farmers. Now, there are still obviously instances where this is not practiced completely or, uh, you know, some farms get away with, you know, just not not practicing these good uh, these good practices. But I think is I think the most effective thing that we can do as consumers when we think about making a difference to farmers is, you know, are we paying are we paying a right price for, for the coffee? Yeah. And in many instances, you know, retailers are buying coffee below the price of production even. Mm. Uh, and that's the worst thing you can do for farmers because they just don't have the ability to to develop and sustain and to produce quality. So for the most part, when you're buying specialty coffee from specialty retailers, you know that they're paying a fair price for it. And, uh, and that's, I think, a big contribution that we can make. It's the easiest most effective way that we can contribute to good farming practices. To double click really quick on that um, before we get into to Bruvi, like has you know the certifications and we'll just take the the broader one of fair trade or direct trade. There's rainforest. There, there's there's all these sort of certifications now in the industry, and you've been you know as a consumer and as a buyer, right? As as sort of a franchisee and an operator and owner, you've seen it from all different sides. Has that been a positive? for the sector to have, you know, these certifications, even from a farmer level, but even also from a buyer, right, perspective. Has, has it been good overall for, for the sector, sort of, in your opinion? I mean, yes. You know, it, it's imperfect, but, mm-hmm. you know, it raises the bar. Um, because what these certification agencies have done is they've created awareness and platform. And it's a sort of low-hanging, easy way for consumers to feel, if you like, guilt-free about their purchases and for producers to achieve a certain standard. So it's definitely raised the bar. It's definitely a good thing. However, people in the know can do even better. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, at Bruvu, we don't adopt a certification because we buy directly from the plantation. Gotcha. So we would rather give the farmers direct contribution rather than going through an agency where, you know, let's say half of it is kept for admin and marketing. And so I'd rather give, you know, our farmers 10 cents a pound in their hand for them to do whatever they want to do with it, rather than give a certification agency 10 cents, knowing that only maybe 5 cents makes it to the farmer. But I don't want to, I don't want to sort of talk down on these things because, you know, it's, it's all like a, it's all a process and the awareness leads to better systems and better ways to do it. So just because a coffee doesn't have, you know, certified fair trade or certified rainforest alliance, 
uh, it doesn't mean it's not practicing uh, some sort of verification program. Mm. And I think consumers are becoming more and more aware and they ask these questions and they want to know. And, you know, as far as brands are concerned, you know, we, we don't, most of the brands that I deal with and, you know, of course, Bruvy, we, we definitely have checklists and we definitely give direct contributions back to the farm, mainly because uh, it's the right thing to do and a good thing to do. But, you know, if ever there's short supply, if there are issues, you know, these guys are going to give us the best quality coffee when we have mm-hmm. been paying them more for it, right. when we have been contributing to it. Uh, so we want to be a nice buyer because when times are tough, we know we'll get the good product. And when times are not tough, we know that we'll get the good product. So again, capitalism ensures that it's a win-win for everyone to do the right thing. Great segue into into Bruvy because like we've mentioned, you've been on all sides of the industry. What made you want to get into the hardware of it? Um, Because this is in, in any sector, hardware is really difficult. A lot of different variables, a lot of different supply chains. I guess, talk us through what was the catalyst for for looking at the space and saying, hey, we want to make a sort of hardware consumer product, you know, for, for the coffee industry. Just just talk about that. I would say selected amnesia because, <laughs> you know, as a startup founder or co-founder in my case, you, you've got to be a little crazy to mm. even do a startup, right? Because, I mean... But you have selected amnesia. You forgot how difficult business can be, and you forgot about all the opposing forces that you have to deal with internally, externally. You know, from a policy standpoint, from a funding standpoint, and then to double down and do a hardware startup. I mean, we must be absolutely nuts <laughs> um, because you know hardware is hard. So, but you know, you have a sense of optimism, and you want to make a difference in the world. You want to create something better, and you forget about all those difficulties as you dive into the you know excitement of being an entrepreneur. But there are a few things I would say to that other than we're crazy. Um, <laughs> but, it, you know, it's we're not really in the hardware business. Mm. Uh, we're, we're, we're a coffee company. You know, we're not an appliance company. The hardware is just the vehicle to be able to conveniently, affordably enjoy high quality coffee at home. And... So, you know, we always think of Bruvy as a coffee company first and foremost. And at the end of the day, we're selling coffee. It just so happens to come out of a machine. But for the most part, we're in the coffee business. And uh, so that's one thing. And the other thing is, you know, don't use the word hardware. We use the word consumer tech, which is uh-huh. way better, sexy, way better, <laughs> uh, especially for investors. Because they're like, oh, you're a hardware business. We're not going to eat. Well, no, we're in the consumer tech. <laughs> All right, let me write you the check. Yeah, so California of you, so Silicon Valley. Yeah, you know, it's you know the right the 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 words you choose. Yeah, from a marketing standpoint, is very important. So you know that's something to bear in mind. But the the true story is when I was the CEO at Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf in 2012, we launched a single serve system um, because it was the sort of heyday of Keurig, and you know they were growing, you know, double digits and. And they had proved to the world by that time that people want convenience at home through these capsules. They had the tough job in 2002, three, four, and five to establish the category in the US and they established it. And so we were like, well, we should have our coffee bean coffee in a single serve system also because they're the only game in town. So we licensed European technology and we bought machines, we put them in our stores, we developed our branded capsules. And going through that process, 
I learned a lot about single serve. And I learned the most, for the most part, that Americans don't drink espresso. Uh, they really like filter or brewed coffee, hmm. what we call low pressure coffee. And they don't think that, you know, a two ounce little small concentrated shot of espresso uh, gives them value like a 12 ounce filtered brewed coffee does. It's just huh. the way we consume coffee in the US compared to Europe. I also learned that having to go through retailers like Bed Bath & Beyond is extremely difficult. And there was no such thing as direct to consumer at the time. We had to go and distribute either through our own store network or you have to do deals with you know, the, the Bed Bath & Beyonds, the Macy's, the Targets, and so on. They, they control the customers. They take between a 35 and 55% margin. They don't pay you very well. And distributing your product through that network is just very difficult. And then also what we discovered was because there is only really one single serve player in the US, which is Keurig, you don't really need to innovate taste and quality that much. Uh, you know, the downside of being a monopoly is that, you know, people will still buy and, you know, innovation is sort of hampered. And really there have been so many advances in single serve technology and the ability to improve quality and to improve taste and to improve the convenience experience that just wasn't coming into the market. So, you know, as as a single serve executive for many, many years, I always thought that as soon as, you know, my non-compete ends and I'm able to get back into coffee, I really wanted to do single serve right and innovate and really deliver to the American consumer a superior experience where taste and quality can be combined together, where you don't have to compromise quality for convenience. And that's the sort of main impetus in terms of why I decided, you know, where do I want to go back into the coffee industry? Do I want to open more stores and have a brand? Right. No. And <laughs> just give you another bit of uh, 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 sort of like sense in terms of the coffee market. If you think about 10 cups of coffee that are consumed before the pandemic, eight cups of coffee are consumed every day at home. Wow. And wow. The, the balance two cups are consumed at the office or, you know, in a coffee store. And, you know, everyone knows about coffee places where you go to and drive to, but the, the majority of Americans, eight yeah. out of 10 of them are consuming coffee at home. Now, after the pandemic, that became 8.7. Wow. And then after the pandemic, people started to say, well, why am I why am I consuming such terrible coffee at home? I, my expectations for my cup of coffee at home should be as easy to make and as good as what I would get if I stood in line in a drive-through. And, and the cost too. Spent right? four bucks I mean, for a coffee. Yeah. So the entire dynamic of thinking about where you get your cup of coffee and your expectations of getting a really good cup of coffee at home has really transformed itself in the last few years. Today, the American consumers expect to have a convenient, affordable and delicious cup of coffee at home. Now, in our opinion, the existing single serve providers like Keurig, who have a 91% market share, and Nespresso, who have like a 7 or 8% market share, do not deliver that experience. You get convenience, you get affordability, you don't get quality and taste. I can ask you this, and many of your listeners would probably agree, when was the last time you had a really delicious cup of coffee that was made out of a capsule? Um, maybe never. Maybe never. So you get, and I'll put this in perspective, 21 billion capsules sold a year in the US. That's the size of the capsule single serve market, 21 billion. Yet these 21 billion consumers are making horrible compromises to the quality of the taste 
and the experience they get generally, but they still buy because it is cheap and it is convenient and single serve is a very effective way of consuming coffee at home. But imagine all those guys could get much tastier, much better quality coffee, but there isn't a provider that does that. So that's where we came in because we saw the opportunity in the market. Uh, there is only one real viable alternative, which is, you know, Keurig and maybe Nespresso because, you know, espresso consumption is growing in the U.S. Yeah. households. So we said we want to play in that area at home where most people are drinking coffee and we want to innovate, transform, if you like, the single serve market because there has been no innovation in taste and quality. They're stuck with a technology system that, you know, was developed in the 90s. So we... Mm. We, we developed Groovy from scratch, uh, new patents, new technologies, bringing to bear all these amazing improvements in heating technology, energy efficiency, degradability of capsules. And we basically innovated every aspect of the experience. And we have provided the market with, you know, the now you can have both value proposition, better convenience and significantly better taste. And when we talk about taste, we talk about removing the bitterness from the coffee experience and getting as good, or dare I say, better taste at home in a convenient single-serve platform than you would if you uh, got it in a coffee shop. When you talk about innovation in the, in the space, what does that look like? You mentioned the technology part. You mentioned the B-Pod part, which is one of the things that really, you know, when I when I looked at the company, really stuck out to me was, you know, how do you invest in these innovation areas that, you know, on the back end have have a real impact and a real, you know, scale after you're done, right? End of life for all these products nowadays, I think is important to me. I think it's starting to be more important to, you know, more conscious consumers out there. It's like, yeah, once I'm done consuming whatever am I consuming, then what happens to it? Right. Because yeah. then there's a whole nother there's a whole nother animal when we dig deep into that side. So so, you know, at Bruvy we innovated in all areas from design to taste to extraction. But one area that was extremely important to us was how do we innovate in terms of eco-consciousness, the fact that we are de we're delivering this product in a plastic capsule. And when we think about the negative effects of plastic, it really is the end of life, the disposal of plastic, that is the problem. Plastic per se is not a problem. Plastic per se I have to say is actually a wonderful material because it's pretty amazing. It, it's, <laughs> it's actually one of the weight. greatest, it's yeah. greatest of all time, really. It's great. The it's problem is it's the most sustainable product ever. <laughs> it just lasts forever. It's a horrible, it's horrible when it comes to end of life, but when it yeah. comes to the, the value proposition of plastic, it is lightweight. It's easy and more energy efficient to transport. It's, it, it provides, you know, safety in terms of health protections because uh, it, it reduces food waste tremendously. It does so many amazing things, but damn, it's hard to get rid of and it's hard to. So, yeah. so what's been happening in plastic end of life? I think we've, we've suffered from two issues. One, everyone's going down the sort of zero waste, you know, the perfect solution for for end of life and, and for behaving in an eco, we're like, there's, you know, if we wait for zero waste or yeah. the perfect solution, yeah, it's not going to happen at least in our lifetimes. Yeah. So we, we took, we're from the school of, we'd love millions of people to practice eco responsibility imperfectly rather than, you know, 10 people to practice it perfectly. So we had to overcome that Yep. that reality in our own heads. So, so that, that's the one thing. And the other thing is, you know, for whatever reason, end of life has always been equated to 
recyclability as being the option or the only option or compostability being the only option. So when you think about the EPA guidelines in terms of, you know, dealing with waste, the first thing is, you know, can we reduce our usage? Well, we're not here to tell people to drink less coffee. And we believe coffee is consumption is only going to grow. The other thing is, you know, can we reuse materials? And then the third factor is, can we compost it? And if we can't compost it, can we recycle it? And only then, you know, can we go to waste to energy? And then fourthly, in landfills. So this EPA hierarchy of waste disposal is a one size fits all. And it works really well for cardboard boxes, maybe for glass. But in our opinion, the problem with this one size fits all is that it doesn't take into fact or consideration that not all materials are created equally. Cardboard boxes are a fantastic material to follow that EPA hierarchy. Plastic is a horrible material to recycle, yet, or compost. Yet everyone is like, you know, recycling your plastic, recycle. But there are reasons why in the US only 4% of plastic ever gets recycled because it is not a one size fits all and it is not a good material to recycle. So when we looked at Bruvi and how we could innovate, you know, everyone's going down the recycling route and we're like, well, look at these you know, material, look at these these recycling facilities. It's all mechanically done, small little capsules, are horrible to recycle because they go through the meshes and they don't they end right. up in the landfill anyway. And what are we expecting consumers to do? Open this capsule and wash it and clean it and separate the, the grinds and then keep it in a little bag and recycle right. it. Only for it to, to be end up in the trash anyway. And then you've got so many problems with plastic recycling because you know the it amounts to downcycling. Every time you recycle plastic anyway, you're creating a product with less stringent technical and aesthetic qualities. So really only 1% of plastic that has it, that is recycled twice because it just gets worse and worse. Unlike aluminum mm. where you can recycle it a thousand times and you don't lose. So there are a hundred reasons. So why. even the R, R, the RPET, RPET. Yeah, the PET. It, it kind of has it, even when you recycle it, it and it, it gets it, reused, it still has an end of life function because it cannot be continually recycled over and over and over and over again. Correct. It's called downcycling because it just never, you always have more and more contamination. So you can't, so you can't do it twice. For every reason in the world, other than PET, which is water bottles and, you know, HDP, which is, you know, maybe your shampoo bottles and, and, and stuff like that. Plastic recycling is a bad idea in, in Bruvi's humble opinion. You know, I, I, I'm, I feel very responsible in, in being careful about what I say. You know, the, you know, we should always look to innovate and find alternatives to plastic. But today there is just not one that is that can be used by big CPG companies. Where possible and where convenient, we should be recycling plastic like water bottles. But little small capsules, in our opinion, would be disingenuous to say they're recyclable. First of all, they're not made from PET or HDP. They're made from PP number five, which is polypropylene. Mm-hmm. And not every community has access to recycling facilities that in fact recycle polypropylene. But even if they do, they're less than two inches in diameter and it's impractical. So, you know, I I just don't think recycling little plastic capsules is practical or uh, a genuine uh, and honest approach. And we've seen that people who say they are recyclable have already been fined and their lawsuits and, and it's just not 
in our opinion, the way to go. So we had to think at Bruvi, well, what is the way to go? Because we like plastic for its food preservation qualities, for its efficiency, its carbon efficiency to produce, but its end of life is problematic. So we researched, we dug deep into all the new technologies out there, and we came across a technology that was fantastic. And we're presenting this technology as an alternative way to dispose of plastics, alternative to recycling. We've infused the plastic capsule with an FDA-safe enzyme. What the enzyme does to the plastic is that it breaks the long chain polymers mm. so that when it ends up in a landfill, only in an anaerobic environment, i.e. when the landfill is covered, not when it's exposed, it will start to degrade. And it degrades in around five years. So every landfill in the US is covered. There are methane capture systems once it's covered. Yep. Um, and you know, almost half or, you know, just less than half of the landfills in the U.S. actually have landfill gas to energy conversion systems that clean the methane gas that's collected and repurposes it into renewable energy. So I'm trying to interview somebody in this space because to me, this is something I mean, that's not talked about. I, can, I, can, I would love to because I don't think it's talked about enough that landfills it's can not. actually be incredibly beneficial very, it's to very, what we're it's, trying to know, accomplish. Like, you think of landfills as, you know, pictures of the 80s, which are overflowing and, you know, barges, yep. you know, falling into the ocean. That is not what a modern landfill is. They're kind of beautiful. They're kind of nice. They're, they're really, they have they're golf really, courses on top of it. They have solar panels on top of it. It's crazy. They're all, they're all, they're all lined with anti-leachate materials. They all have gas collection systems in them. But, they're, they're, but they're, there's a lot of misinformation and confusion. So I'll give you an example. We would not advocate throwing organic waste into the trash. Because what happens with organic waste is that it ends up in the landfill and it starts to ferment very quickly before the landfill is covered. So what happens with organic waste is that you get this fermentation and the methane gas that's produced is lost to the atmosphere and contributes to greenhouse gases. But with our solution, with our plastic solution, it will only start to degrade when the landfill is actually covered and when you have a higher propensity of methane being able to be collected. So, you know, it's a very, so, so, so people will say, well, you know, landfills contribute to methane. Yes, they do when it's organic waste, absolutely. But our plastics that have been treated are start to degrade after most of the collections can be effective. So again, you have very differences. The differences are, are very nuanced, but make a huge difference. So what we do at Bruvi is we've taken a problem, i.e. plastic waste, and we've turned it without changing human behavior, without yep. having additional infrastructure, huge composting infrastructure, more garbage trucks coming to pick up, you know, compostable stuff. And we have made the problem, i.e. plastic waste, into renewable energy. Now, what's wrong with that solution? And that, you know, for what I'm really excited about is why are we just doing this? Why is Bruvy little startup company that's, you know, trying its best to make a difference and improve, you know, the, the consumer experience at home and, you know, trying to make a difference in the world. Why can't we be an example to other mm -hmm. companies who produce yogurt cups, who produce salad mm -hmm. dressing cups, who make apple sauces? I, I don't know. The list goes on. Those things are not per se recyclable, no matter what right. people will say. No matter um, what symbol on the back. No matter what it says on the back. And California is actually, thank goodness, coming up with a, a regulation that's really going to shake up the industry in January next year. You can't have the chasing arrow symbols on product that 
basically uh, where, where you know communities don't have 60% of communities or more don't have access to recycling. So why don't we have an alternative way to dispose of plastic where all you need to do is take the product and throw it in your trash? Nothing different. Now, how we're already doing that. We're already doing it. doesn't end up in just think about a, a capsule that you make at home. You have you have to make it home. It's not litter. It goes into the trash because it's at home. It's not like a, a, a candy bar wrapper or something like that where you could end up in a park, you know, where it leaves the value stream and ends up in the ocean. Capsules don't do that because they're made at home. They're thrown in the trash and it ends up with the same infrastructure in a landfill where it contributes to renewable energy. I, I want to know why. Um, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Because everyone, and everyone, there's so many lobbies and so many interest groups that are going to say all sorts of things about it. And, and that's the beauty of, you know, life that everyone, you know, the plastic recycling associations and the, the existing companies that say that their little capsules are recyclable, they're all going to find and give excuses and say reasons why. And my answer to all those guys is you're right. This isn't a perfect solution because as it so happens, only 98.7% of our capsule is actually going to degrade. There's a small yep. element that isn't. You're right. There are some landfills that you know potentially uh, don't have waste energy conversions. So there are also problems, but I can tell you this. There are many, many, many less issues in throwing your capsule in the trash and then ending up in the landfill for it to degrade and for it to be turned into renewable energy than there are throwing your little capsule in the recycling bin. Because I would bet that actually hmm. what we do when we do that is we contaminate the yeah. recycling stream. And that's why a lot of stuff recycled. doesn't get recycled is because of the contamination. Worse, yeah. it actually affects mm. decent product that should be recycled um, because it contaminates that. It makes it more inefficient. And it ends up in the landfill anyway. I want to know what the hell is happening out there to make this solution not more widely used. And why is Bunley Bruvi right. and a couple of other small producers, you know, taking the difficult task of having to educate consumers, having to come on, you know, podcasts and talk shows mm -hmm. and having to having to explain to the general consumer that recycling little small capsules that have color additives and God knows what other additives that use polypropylene is not a good idea. There are other better ideas. Help me out here, Grant. What, what's the, uh, <laughs> what's the, uh, you mentioned the, the California legislation. Are you able to touch on that? Like what, what does that entail? It's a, it's a labeling, it's a labeling, uh, uh, regulation about the inability for brands to use recycling arrows on the resin codes. So when you <laughs> see, when you see a piece of plastic, you see one, two, three, four, five, six, yep. and so on. People mistake those things as, oh, this can be recycled. Right. Those are just resin codes. Those just say uh, what the plastic is made of. Um, one being PET, two being HDPE, five being polypropylene, and so on. But because they're chasing arrows on those codes, and because of the general misinformation, people are like, oh, I see like chasing arrows and this is number five. I'm going to throw it in my recycling bin. No, 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 no. Anything other than PT1, uh, anything other than resin code one and two is actually not universally recyclable. Five potentially can be, but not all Americans have ex access to those facilities that do. And I think California is just saying no more chasing arrows. 
and no more confusion when it comes to this. And I think that's going to make a big difference. And we actually agree with, with, with these things. And when California adopts these policies, it becomes very difficult uh, for consumers not to make it applicable for, the, for America at large because you know, we have online and direct consumer marketing now. And, and uh, there's just going to be, there's going to be some changes in, in, in the way. And, and I hope people are just getting a lot more informed about the good, bad, and ugly of recycling. Recycling is fabulous, but not all materials make for right. good recycling solutions. Yep. But even more so, they, they can actually do more in a landfill, which is, I think, not sort of the the thing being talked about where so, so i'll throw i'll throw you stuff your way but just so you know the epa has an organization called lmop and this organization supports and provides information about the the landfill arena if you like in the u.s yeah. and and how different companies can actually use can actually use landfill waste to energy programs. Again, this is not about burning plastics and you know getting rid of. Yeah. You know, this is not waste to energy. This is landfill gas to energy, which is very different. Without diving into the detail, sure, it's very difficult to change, and and it has to be capitalism, and it has to be the consumers that actually make change, just like it did in us buying you know better for the world coffee. But one thousand seven hundred or five hundred or so active municipal landfills in the US, 80% of them are either owned or controlled by three companies. Wow. If, wow. if these guys were committed to putting landfill gas to energy conversions, we would solve all our problems. <sighs> three companies. Wow. Now, why are they not incentivized? They're not incentivized because they make a ton of money just dumping waste into landfills. They don't need to take the extra step from an incentive standpoint. They're you know, all good people and everyone wants to do best for the world, but there's no grants or extra incentive for there's them. Not to subsidy, there's not a subsidy to, there isn't. to, to help because, them invest because, in doing that. I mean, yeah. what are you going to do? Go to your politician and say, <laughs> yeah. let's dump more plastic in landfills. The politician is going to say, no, the L word is a bad word and the R word recycling is a good word. And... I'm not going to advocate for better landfills. I'm going to advocate for more recycling because Mel, what I want we to be need, in. Mel, what we need is, we said hardware earlier, no, it's consumer tech. We need another word for landfill. What can what can we come up with that I don't replaces know. We've been the word? Find one. If you got one, send it my way. Field field tech. Field tech. <laughs> I mean, these things are just garbage not... tech, waste tech, maybe waste tech. But all we need to do is incentivize these three large operators to invest in landfill waste to energy projects and we will have created mm. from landfill being a methane uh, producing uh, entity we would have turned that into a natural renewable resource yep it's such and a game that, changer that, it's a game changer it is a no-brainer and and you know i wish i was more politically inclined because i would stand up there in in front of the legislation you know i don't i'm not worried about being reelected or yep. or anything like that but the little thing that bruvi can do and the little things you guys as consumers can do if and when you buy a bruvi machine first of all you get the best coffee you've ever had in the most convenient way but you will advocate for an alternative way to dispose of plastics and and we can be living breathing examples of doing things imperfectly but much better than the status quo. And sure. we'll move along that continuum until we get to zero exactly. waste. Yep, exactly. 
thank you so much for, for, for taking the time. This has been amazing. Uh, absolutely amazing. And the only reason I know this well, some of this is because we're like renovating this old house that we bought and we've been going to to the landfill with, with stuff from, you know, packing up in the house, going to the landfill. And I'm like, this place is like amazingly clean. And my father-in-law is like, yeah, you see these sort of poles that are sticking out of the ground. He's like, that's methane gas being produced from the garbage. Yeah. And I'm oh, like, yeah. this is amazing. It's amazing. Like, Do me a favor. Get somebody from, you know, waste management. Get somebody from, because they they will tell you this, but they're like, they're, they're, they're making so much money just picking up garbage and dumping it. Why? They don't need so, to do anything else. Exactly. So they probably wouldn't come on and, not, and talk but about no, it. But, but, they'll, they'll but there you, are, this, is an, this is incredible. This is great, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if we just put a little bit of subsidies their way and, and makes it, make it equally as profitable for them to, to invest in these systems, great. The other person you should get on is somebody from LMOP, L-M-O-P. Go to the EPA website. The, you know, Jeez. everything I'm telling you is government endorsed. The government is trying to push the value and the merits of landfill gas to energy projects. It's not the commercial sector trying to do this. But of course, it's very unpopular to go on air and to tell somebody don't recycle your plastic or to say landfills are actually wonderful opportunities for us to create renewable energy. Very unpopular. No one's going to listen to you. <laughs> they might throw you off your own show, Grant. Then you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm independent, so they can't do that part. But <laughs> the, the, the long arm of, of uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. But but it's not so much don't recycle your plastic. It could be you can recycle no, no, no. all plastic recycle into one. Plastic, recycle PT, recycle one. Yeah, the one and two. That's what we need people do to that. understand. Yeah. That should be the only two symbols on Correct. products. Correct. And, then, and you know, or, or even even PT and HDPE when it's less than two inches in diameter, don't recycle it. Small little uh, because it'll give more value. It'll give more value to the earth if it ends up in a landfill that produces provided provided they're infused with enzyme. And it is gotcha. every plastic manufacturer can do this, but all the guys that are making plastic, they don't dare do this. Because they'll piss off the recycling thing, and you know, the, the, you know, people will say, "What are you talking about? Throwing stuff in the landfill, letting it degrade? That will create methane." Yes, it will if it's food. Yes, it will if it's mm-hmm. organic. But will it really when the landfill is topped and sealed, and when we have landfill, and when it only degrades when it's in an anaerobic environment? It's a great solution. We have it. Mm-hmm. We're ready. It's the path of least resistance. Amazing. <laughs>